Do you watch? Do you like to watch the do-it-yourself shows? Um, my wife does. It seems like her default channel on the TV is is DIY. There is a DIY channel. Are you aware of that? Now, I'm I'm less than impressed with the DIYers. Uh, I watch that stuff and kind of uh, I, I kind of get it, but. Um, and, and I'm, maybe it's just I'm envious that I'm not as good with my hands as some of these people are. But, um, but I'm fairly convinced that all these guys on the DIY channel aren't really doing all the work themselves. Okay? I, I don't want to burst your bubble. But I'm not really convinced they're doing all that work themselves. In fact, I sometimes wonder if the real work is getting done when they aren't on camera. Okay? Uh, pardon me for being a cynic. Okay? But I wonder. I, I see them doing a few things on camera, and then they cut away, and when they come back, it's all done. And I just figure there's 15 guys that come in and do that work while they're getting their hair done. You know? So I, I don't know. But um, I got a thing about hair today, don't I? Sorry. Uh, now, what I want us to talk about today is the fact that nobody that I know is truly independent. Nobody that I know it can actually make the claim of being a self-made person, a do-it-yourself person. Most of what we have, most of what we use, and most of what we do depends on what at least some others have done to make those things and actions possible in the first place. Uh, as we approach the end of life, we often struggle uh, about, uh, against becoming more and more dependent on others. We kind of deal with that with, with Rhonda's folks now. They, uh, her dad in particular really is an independent kind of guy. And yet he's having to be more dependent on the family and on, on folks to care for for Rhonda's mom and, and other things. It's just, isn't it simply true that none of us is really truly independent? Now, but the truth is, not only do we often want to be independent of other people, but sometimes we want to be independent of God as well. At the core of what Bible calls sin is the human desire to become like God, uh, to become, become a king of our own lives. If you, if you don't believe me, read the third chapter of the Bible in the fall of mankind. Uh, it's just this idea expressed there. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to become, uh, if you remember that first temptation from the serpent was, you will be like God. So, I think it's woven through the fabric of all, all of Scripture even. Um, sin is more than breaking God's rules. It's declaring our independence from God. So we're going to talk a little bit today about that universal desire. Now, I mentioned last week there are several themes converging in the book of Mark. Uh, two of them I'll just mention parenthetically this morning. One of them I mentioned last week is this idea that uh, in Mark's gospel especially, um, the Jesus gives a lot of attention to the weak and marginalized of his culture. Uh, from his first public actions in Mark, uh, Jesus deliberately acts on behalf of those who didn't belong to the upper levels of society. Um, and, and he kind of has an interest in, we saw this last week, with the man who brought his son to Jesus and had no basis or no claim on special treatment, and yet Jesus healed his son. 
Another thing that we'll see kind of unfolding here is uh, he talks about his followers need to become like children. And that's actually in the early verses of chapter 10. Uh, we'll kind of pick it up after that. But he's going to talk about um, there, if you're, if you're reading in that section, uh, he wants his followers to become like children. And in fact, he rebukes his disciples for forbidding children to come to him for a blessing. Instead, he says, anyone who wants to belong to God's kingdom has to become like a little child. That's in verse 15 uh, in, in Mark 10. Um, my son and I were talking a few days ago. Um, we were talking about this little child, this little almost four-year-old child that died in their church, and and uh, and they had the service this week. And and uh, as he was working some of the family, and as as uh, the other pastors were working the family, he said, "Okay, Dad, what, what do you say? What do you what you've done this stuff? What where do you find scripture to help? And of course, one of the scriptures that helps is Mark ten fifteen, because Jesus says here, let the little children come to me, and that wonderful phrase, of such is the kingdom of God. It sounds like to me that Jesus is identifying a child in innocence as a citizen of the kingdom of God, even before they're of age to make um, a decision for themselves. So, anyway, there's just great theology in here. Now, what I want you to think about here, and look at verse 31. We will get there, but we kind of won't get there, okay? Um, at 1031, here's what he says. He says, um, kind of this, this beautiful idea in Jesus' teaching, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, there's lots of meanings that we could shade to that, but what I want you to think about as we're looking at today's, um, uh, today's passage, this story from the scriptures today is, Jesus is really about, in his entire public ministry, turning things upside down. The last first, the first last, the rich poor, the poor rich. Okay, so kind of think about that as we get into this passage today. Bob, I'm happy that you made it out in the rain. And by the way, your hair looks fine. Does she help? Okay, all right. Start at verse 17, if you will, and read down through 22. Okay, all right. He was, he was excited about that. I can tell. That was good. All right. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about what we know about this man. If your Bible is like mine, it calls him what? 
It calls him the rich young ruler. Well, none of that is in this text. The only thing that I read in the text that Bob just read, with the exception of maybe verse 22, is that it was a man who came to Jesus, okay? So there, it's a guy, all right? We've got to go a couple other places to figure this out. Now, in verse 22, it indicates that he was wealthy, uh, okay? So he's rich, so there's that one. Let's go to a couple other places. Will you turn back with me to Matthew uh, 19, verse 20? A different telling of the same story by Matthew, Matthew 19, verse 20. What do we learn there? The young man said to him, all these things have I kept, what am I still lacking? So he's young, okay, so now we know he's a man and he's rich and he's young. Uh, what about the ruler thing? Well, look, look in, um, look if you will, in Luke 18, 18. So you're going to go back to the right from Mark, Luke 18, 18. And in whatever uh, connotation of this you choose, it's interesting that in verse 18, only in Luke does it say, a ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit good life, eternal life? So it's interesting. He could be identified the rich young ruler, but none of those three um, identifiers are found in any one of the Gospels, all three together. You've got to piece it together from all three of them together. So he was rich. He was young, and he was a leader, a ruler in some way, okay? Now, what's he asking for? He wants to inherit eternal life. Now, we've got to unpack that a little bit because in context, Jesus has been teaching about eternal life, but he's teaching about eternal life in the context of the coming kingdom and the kingdom that he is ushering in with his presence on the planet and his work and his redemption. So... Um, uh, he is, um, this man is not asking just for everlasting life, but he wants to be a part of this new kingdom. He wants to be a part of, of what's coming. He, he hears great things about it, a day of blessing, a kingdom day. But his question is messed up. What's wrong with his question? What must I do? Okay, now I've got to kind of come to terms with that. What must I do? That's kind of the, the mistake here in, in this. Now, let's go on down to verse 18 then. And what I want you to put in the blank there is theologically. The man is theologically correct. Good luck, good luck spelling that. The man is theologically correct. Okay, uh, he has, uh, let me read verse 18 again for us. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. So he, um, he has identified Jesus as a good teacher. Um, but he's also identified, there's, there's some theological correctness here implied. It's not direct, but it's implied. For, first of all, he calls him a good teacher. Now, what if you're a good and faithful Jewish person in the first century, you're going to acknowledge that being good belongs to God alone. Okay, you and I should recognize that today too. That there's all kinds of scripture in the Old Testament, and certainly if he is, as he describes himself later, a a kind of um, Ten Commandments abiding person, a good Jewish young man, he'll recognize that there is none good except God alone, and yet he calls Jesus good here. Also, if you get to thinking about it, 
He is asking a question about eternal life, and the truth is that eternal life is a question only God can address. So it makes me wonder, at least, at his question. Was this a question of faith? You know, we're dealing with this in this series. Questions of faith and, and, and acknowledgments of faith. Was this... Uh, at least somewhat an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. God alone is good. God alone has the answers to the question of eternal life. And he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I don't know. It's something to think about here. Maybe he's really, really, really close. Maybe he gets it here, but it hasn't made that 18-inch uh, trip from his head to his heart, you know? Well, uh, so he's kind of theologically correct here. Now, verse 19, Jesus is going to give him a Ten Commandments answer. I, I like this. He kind of shares several of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Okay, that's part of the answer. I find this kind of interesting. Now, these laws remind us that the law-giving God alone is good. Okay, that's going to be right down the line of what we're talking about. The commandments are good. They're given by a God who is good. But he's also, in saying this, I think, he's placing a context around the man's question and Jesus' answer. He's, he's placing a context saying, you know that God is good and that his, his laws are good, but you also know at the failure of mankind to follow the commandments as they should. And as he kind of identifies Exodus 20 here, and the Ten Commandments, he's almost kind of acknowledging that at the same time Jesus is. What happened right after Exodus 20? Remember the, the law was given to Moses? This is part of it. And when, Mo, when Moses comes down from the mountain, they've broken everyone they can think of before they even know about them, Okay, uh, With the golden calf, all those things. Now, so the idea here is these laws remind us that the law-giving God alone is good, but its recipients are not necessarily. The people have failed. And if, if the young man is listening, he's going to identify himself with those same kind of people. The people have failed. Bob? I'm sorry? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that running around. You're right. It's in the water. Okay. Now, uh, I want somebody to go in just a minute to 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Who will go there? Thank you, Steve. Will you go there? Okay. Uh, and I heard another I will. So, so that person go to Mark 12, 44. I heard the voice. I didn't see who it was. Who was it? Estella, was that you? Okay, Mark 12, 44. All right, now, verse 20. Okay. Here's what the man says. Listen to me read it from the New American Standard. Here's what he says. 
He said to him, remember Jesus has just identified the commandments that historically the people have defied. And he says, I've kept all these from my youth up. He basically said, I am the owner of the DIY channel. <laughs> Rhonda missed me talking about DIY a while ago. Okay? I am DIY. I got it done. All right? Now, he makes three mistakes here, I think. First of all, he fails to acknowledge God as uniquely good. He calls Jesus good. But he fails to acknowledge God as uniquely good, the only one good. Remember we talked about that? Uh, in fact, Jesus answered, the only one good is God, God alone. All right? Uh, secondly, he fails to acknowledge, I believe, his own sin, his own falling short. And then there's a third mistake. Because I, and this, here's what you can put in your, in your blank. I think the third mistake he makes, and probably the biggest one, is the man falsely compares himself to other people or to, to others. Now, Paul gives us a warning against doing that, okay, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians. Um, Steve, would you read 10, 12? 2 Corinthians 10, 12. When I measure myself by myself or compare myself to myself or if I compare myself to Joe Jones, I'm not wise. It doesn't, Joe Jones is not in there. I made that up. But, but, okay, you get it. I don't compare myself to me now or, or any other time. I don't compare myself to Katie. That would be a mistake because she's going to outpace me, all right? Who do I compare myself to? To God alone. And we're all going to fall short there. Interesting, isn't it? Now, the man falsely compares himself to others. What should he do? Compare himself to God. And that's all go always going to lead us to the right conclusion. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Okay? Let's move on, okay? Verse 21. So Jesus makes what I'm going to call an extraordinary request in verse 21. You can put that word in the blank. What's the request? You know, I wonder if Jesus says this with a shrug. Just give it up and follow me. Give it up. <clears throat> I, I certainly think he does uh, with a twinkle in his eye. Um, uh, we've got to catch it here. By the way, what motivates Jesus to ask him the question? Did you catch this? Certainly that, that is true because he can read the heart. But notice how verse 21 begins. What does it say? He loved him. He loved him. Isn't it wonderful to think, though, but before you, because, by the way, we've got the, 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 the distinction here. Uh, it's not actually a benefit. It's, it's kind of, it can take away from sometimes our right interpretation of Scripture. We know too much already. 
You know, we need to stay in this moment for a minute. Jesus looks at him with a twinkle in his eye, if you want to say it that way, and he loves him. And the request is, come on, man, follow me. Here's what you got to do. But it was an extraordinary request. I don't see it anywhere else. Uh, Estella, would you read uh, 1244? Okay, this is from in the middle of another story, and the idea was it was much easier for this woman to follow because she didn't have a lot to lose. Evidently, this guy thinks, I got a lot to lose. And Jesus, you're right, Estella, reads that and says, you know what? If you'll just kind of leave all that, you can follow me. I think it's a sincere offer. I know it is. And yet, you and I kind of know the rest of the story, don't we? Verse 22 says that, how did he walk away from this? Sadly. Um, go with me over to Luke 16, 14. Here's a different kind of dismissal. This wasn't his kind of dismissal. Uh, the word is, that I want you to put in your blank there is thoughtless. This is not a thoughtless dismissal of Jesus' offer. 16:14 from the Gospel of Luke. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. What does that mean? <laughs> that stuff. Kids, you, come on. Lovers of money, they scoffed at him. This young man didn't do that. I wanted you to catch this. He didn't do that. This wasn't a thoughtless rejection. He's sad. Why? I believe because he's unwilling to trade in his self-sufficiency in order to follow Jesus. He's unwilling to trade his DIY for following Jesus. It is truly sad. Truly sad. Bob? I'm not sure I agree with you, but that's a good point, okay? I think Jesus, I think the young man may know who Jesus is. I think his, his question indicates, okay, you know about eternal life. Who knows about that but God? You know, you're the only one good. Okay, so I'm, 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 I don't want to argue with you about that, but if he did know who he is, how much more sad is that? that I'm not willing to drop what I'm doing, this self-sufficiency, this do-it-myself mentality, to be able to follow someone who can lead me better. Okay, Bob, since you're still here and, 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 and dialed in, 20, verse 23, read down through 31. Let's see what happens the rest of the story. Jesus looked around and said to
we can leave it off right there. Okay? Now, it begins with Jesus overturning. So you can put the word here, overturning popular thought. Here's the popular thought from the day. Okay, this is a carryover from the Old Testament. I don't know how they can read the book of Job and get this still, but, but they did. The, the, the thought prevailing in Jesus' day, popular thought, this is conventional wisdom, is wealth must mean favor. God's favor. Okay? Say it another way. Righteousness must equal blessing. In financial what blessing in particular, okay? What Jesus has done here, and by the way, my wife and I argued about the value of, um, of algebra a couple of days ago. She didn't like it when they started making them multiply numbers, uh, letters instead of numbers. Um, what Jesus is going to turn on, his, on its head here is this whole thought. He's going to say, wealth doesn't necessarily mean favor. Does not equal favor. Okay? Now, let's talk about this for a little bit. Verse 24, the disciples hear that. They're asking him uh, kind of what happened here. And um, Jesus makes this comment about, about righteousness doesn't necessarily mean wealth. So it's not necessarily that, that this guy has made it just because he's kind of fairly well off. He's overturning that thought. And the disciples in verse 24 are scratching their heads at this and they're amazed at it. And so uh, he says to them, how hard is it to enter the, the kingdom of God? And he calls them children here. Again, kind of identi identifying that. The disciples are surprised that wealth could even be thought to be a hindrance to faith. So he'll restate the overturn in the next verse, in verse 25, and he says something that's really cryptic and lots of people over centuries, over years, have tried to explain what he says in verse 25. All right? What I want you to know is this, okay? I'm going to start it this way. I have a friend that I was with a little bit this week. He came to work with us as a consultant this week. He wrote a book on fundraising, which is part of the role that I play at the university, called It's Not About the Money. Okay? And it's a wonderful collection of stories Terry Mundy writes. What I want to say to you is this. I want to borrow Terry's turn of phrase and say this. What Jesus says in verse 25 is not about camels and not about needles. It's not about camels and it's not about needles. You all, all have probably heard some preacher preach at some time in the past the story about a camel had to kneel to go through this place in the, in the wall of Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle, right? The only problem with that is no place ever existed like that, okay? <laughs> there is no place ever in the history of Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle that a camel would have to kneel to go through. So that, somebody thought that one up, and it, it made it sound kind of plausible, a little more plausible, right? So what is being said here? Is this being said, have you heard about a quarterback who could thread the needle? Have you heard about that? It's not talking about that either. Here's the problem with the thought that Jesus is going after, this thought. Here's the problem, and you and I are going to have to kind of deal with it for a minute in a personal fashion. He says it's hard for this, to, this thing to happen. 
This kind of person defined faith. But it's not about camels and needles. What is it about? Go with me to Luke 14, 26. Jesus says cryptic things a lot. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Does that mean that in order to be a follower of Jesus, I've got to hate everybody in my family? I don't think you would think that, right? So evidently, what he's saying in Mark 10.25 is not about a camel and a needle. It's not about the money. Just like Luke 14.26 is not about familial hatred. So if I want to come back and apply to myself Jesus' words, what i got to recognize in our culture, and I'm going to tell you about this is true in this room, every one of us in this room is rich in this context. Does that make the heat go up a little bit? Every one of us. There's not a single one of us in the U.S., and certainly in this room, who wouldn't be identified as being one of the rich men. Now, as for me, I'm not a ruler, and I ain't young. But I would be considered, in Jesus' eyes, rich. So it applies to all of us, whatever it is he's trying to say here. Every one of us in this room is rich. So it's true that everyone here is rich, and the second thing is true, and the most important thing that we've got to get here is that no one in this room can save themselves. This is not a do-it-yourself proposal. All of us are rich, and none of us can save ourselves. That's what he's saying to this guy. That's what he's saying to the disciples. Recognize, okay, that none of us, none of you can save yourself. The question here is about that. And they ask another question. And their question in verse 26 confronts this kind of conventional wisdom. They're astonished and they say to him, then who in the world can be saved if this is not true? It kind of reflects this conventional wisdom. They're saying, wow, can anyone be saved then? And his answer back to them in verse 27 is clearly not about wealth. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What is it? It's D-I-Y. As long as I'm relying on me, I'm going to miss the kingdom and the blessing and the gift of eternal life. Janie, you helped me learn this 20 years ago. You really did help me learn this 20 years ago when we were working in EE together. D-I-Y won't get me there. And so Peter asks a secondary question, and I'm glad he does. He says, wait a minute, Lord, but we've left everything to follow you. 
It's kind of a searching question here. And, and what I think he's asking here, I'm just going to tell you what I think he's asking is, Lord, am I going to be glad I made this trade? <laughs> am I going to be glad I made the trade? And Jesus' answer in verse 29, 30, and 31 is along the line. Following Jesus in faith requires no loss in sacrifice. It's the best trade you'll ever make. The best trade you'll ever make. No loss in sacrifice. There's, there's nothing you're going to miss, nothing you're going to lose. It's, it's this idea uh, coined um, somewhere in the Amazon jungle, really, this idea that am I gonna not am I gonna be w willing to give up that which I can't keep in trade for that that which I cannot lose? Okay, I'm a child of the '70s. Actually, I was born in the '50s, but I grew up in the '60s, and I remember a lot of the '70s. So and I remember a song, lots of songs written by uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Uh, you, you guys probably know a lot of those too. Um, um, you could quote several of them to me. They wrote a, a later one though that was sung back in the in the eighties when Elton John's voice changed. You remember that one? His voice changed. He got kind of a, he, from screaming. He became kind of a, a baritone in somewhere in the eighties, and and he sings a song called Sacrifice. And by the way, if you really want to love this song, listen to Annie Lennox sing it. Wow, I'm a big Annie Lennox fan. Here's the words to just the chorus. Cold, cold heart, hard done by you. Some things look better, baby, just passing through, and it's no sacrifice. Just a simple word. It's two hearts living in a separate world, but it's no sacrifice. It's no sacrifice. It's no sacrifice at all. Here's my question to you. Do you trust him? Are you willing to take whatever it is you're trusting in now and instead transfer it to what he's already done for you on a cross 2,000 years ago? Are you willing to no longer try to do it yourself and transfer that trust into what he's already done for you as entrance to the kingdom? Do you trust him? I'm going to ask you one more time this week to simply, as a matter of, of faith, say two simple words. The young man in our story today couldn't say them. I believe. When it's hard, when the price seems really high, will you just stop yourself for a moment and say, I believe. I believe. Lord, I don't get it. I don't know how it works out. The, the economics of this don't really quite work out for me. I can't figure out what's going to come. And I know that you've promised me this and you've promised me eternal life. And I'm not really sure what that's all about. But I'm just going to say to you, I 
believe. A simple statement of faith that makes all the difference in the world. When he asks you, will you follow me? There's your answer. I believe. I trust you. Mark 14 next week. Be careful in this weather. I'll see you.